Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The top story of the week is undoubtedly the passing of Senator John McCain. He died last Saturday of brain cancer at age 81, just a few days shy of his next birthday. He was a patriot. He served his country both in the military and in political life. Everybody has a story about John McCain. He's been in processions all weekend long. People have been paying their respects to him. His final resting place will be at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Miranda, you specifically had a relationship with the senator. You knew his daughter, Meghan McCain. You worked with her for a few years. You know the family. Tell us something about John McCain. Who was he to you? Senator McCain was larger than life in so many ways. It's like you walk into a room and he's there and your eyes just go to him. You just kind of want to watch what he's up to because he's the guy who's like standing in the corner, you know, making the wisecracks. You kind of want to be sitting next to him to just to hear everything he has to say about everybody. I didn't get to spend much quality time with him. The last time that I was in his presence was last November at Megan's wedding. I attended because we're friends. We're close friends. We talk every day. And, uh, you know, I bent down and I said, thank you for inviting us to your home and having us at this wedding. And he just grabbed my hands and looked deep into my eyes and said, you know, thank you for all of your kindness. And whether he says that to everybody or not, it made me feel special. Right. But even what you said, you know, he walks into the room and you kind of just want to see what what he's doing, what he's saying. And he comes out with these little wisecracks and whatnot. I mean, that's who John McCain was. He was a war hero. You know, he went through so much in the military crashing down and getting his arms and legs broken and all that stuff. And he went through all that stuff and came out stronger, still continued to dedicate his life to the country. But he always had that sense of humor. He always wanted to be very cordial with people. And, you know, he's going to live on for a long time in the memories of a lot of people. Yeah, that's what I'm going to miss the most is that even though he could have been bitter or angry about what happened to him in his life and the even just the way he had been treated in recent years by his own party, he never lost that sense of not taking himself too seriously. He was one of those people who was not only in on the joke, but starting it. He represented Arizona for 35 years in both the House of Representatives and in the Senate. He leaves behind a legacy of duty, honor, and country. Our colleague Rob Hunter from KFYI 550 in Phoenix, he's been covering Senator McCain for the past 11 years. So we asked him to recount some of his favorite memories with a six-term senator here on the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. When you think of Arizona politics, two names loom larger than the rest. One is Barry Goldwater, the five-term senator, one-time presidential candidate. The second, and more recent, is the man who won his first Senate seat after Goldwater retired, John McCain, the six-time senator, two-time presidential candidate. McCain passed away on August 25th, four days shy of his 82nd birthday. He'd been battling brain cancer for just over a year. And during this year, McCain put up a valiant fight, fitting for McCain, who had always been known as just that, a fighter. And this description goes back to his five and a half years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. There at the Hanoi Hilton, the North Vietnamese knew his father, John S. McCain Jr., was an admiral with the U.S. Navy. So they offered John Sidney McCain III an opportunity to leave the prison early. 
knowing their offer was propaganda, and because he wholeheartedly believed in the military code that said prisoners of war should be released in order of their capture, McCain turned down their offer. It was that honor in duty and love of country in which McCain found meaning. Probably saved his life back then. And once he was released in 1973, it's the same honor, duty, and love of country he devoted his life to. It was this theme that won him national recognition during his speech at the 1988 Republican convention. Duty, honor, country. We are a great country, the most wonderful in the world. A beacon of hope for millions who live in darkness and despair. He did so as a fighter. And sometimes that got McCain in trouble. I first met McCain, the fighter, during his second presidential run. I had traveled to Iowa in November of 2007 in the lead-up to the 2008 primaries. There in the first state to caucus in this primary, my colleague Daryl and I found ourselves at a John McCain town hall event in some small room in some small Iowa town with a small crowd asking the Arizona senator questions about illegal immigration and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. At the time, McCain was polling third or fourth in the primary, but still there he was in frosty Iowa answering questions one by one. He even answered some of our questions as well after his event was over. I started by asking him, I don't know, a simple question at a press gathering. I can't even remember the question, but I do remember his response. Immediately, McCain snapped, who are you with? And I replied, blah, 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 radio station out of Phoenix. Hearing Phoenix, the senator instantly warmed up. Said, oh, okay. Went on to answer my question. And he answered a follow-up. McCain was in his groove, doing what he did best, talking like he was on the Straight Talk Express during the 2000 campaign. Loose and friendly with the media. He was on the Straight Talk Express back in 2000. Straight Talk Express. Then, Daryl, my colleague, chimed in. He asked McCain two or three questions about illegal immigration. It was a hot issue at the time in 07, especially in Arizona. Daryl and I had both just moved to this border state less than a year prior to finding ourselves in Iowa with McCain. And right after the third question, McCain looked at Daryl and says, if you have any real questions, I'd be happy to answer them. So Daryl followed up with another question about immigration. McCain snapped something like, we're done here, and walked off. It's quite the first impression. Now, we weren't the first to run into McCain's temper, nor would we be the last. McCain temper, really stuff of legend in D.C. and in media circles. And it wasn't just his temper that was stuff of legend. It was his fighter pilot degradation of his friends. In fact, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, one of McCain's best friends, talked about that in remembering his colleague this week. Humiliation and affection were constant companions. The more he humiliated you, the more he liked you. And in that regard, I was well served. And he was right. McCain was feist. He was smart and self-deprecating. And he told amazing stories. So after 2007, our run-in with McCain, I met and interviewed the senator countless other times. All of them were completely cordial, even when we disagreed on issues. It's interesting to kind of look back at those because I can't even really remember anything that stood out during those interviews. Mostly they were policy-driven, probably about disagreements he had with President Obama, his opponent in 2008, disagreements about foreign policy or health care. See, it's not those moments I remember. I remember trying to keep up with him walking down the hallways at my radio stations. There he was, scooting into a studio at the age of 78 or 80, walking faster than everyone else in there, including me. I'm 41 years younger than him, racing to keep up. This is the McCain who traveled the war zones well into his 70s, flying in the middle of the night on who knows how long of flights. That's what I remember. I also remember the stories, including this one, about the way they, as prisoners of war, communicated in the Hanoi Hilton. 
They used what McCain called a simple tap code. I can still tap as fast as I can talk. And once I like I lived next door to the same guy for a couple of years when I lived alone. And it was like the old telegraph operators in the old West. You know, I mean, we'd be tapping each other so much that like, for example, and you just tap the letter in, you know, because you just shorthand. Come, yeah. yeah. yeah Prisoner like shorthand. shorthand. Yeah. So that was that was almost like texting now. But yeah. I, yeah. But I also want to I want to tell you it was vital. It was vital to Tay in communication and with people like Jim Stockdale, who were our leaders, who inspired us, who made us, uh, allowed us and motivated us to do things we never would have been capable of doing. That tapping and communicating with each other, that's why they kept us apart. That's why they kept me for three years in solitary confinement was because that they didn't want us to communicate and organize. And we overcame that. There he was talking to my 550 KFYI colleagues in Phoenix, Mike Broomhead and Andrew Babinski. Now, fast forward to President Trump's inauguration in January of 2016. Roomhead and I were in D.C. sitting in McCain's spacious office. We were talking to him about the transition of power, conversations he'd had with President Trump, which weren't super friendly. He even talked about his post-election conversation with Hillary Clinton. His advice to her, he said, keep busy. McCain knew he'd been there before. Knowing McCain knows more about foreign policy than most anyone else on the planet, I asked him about Rex Tillerson, the former ExxonMobil CEO who was becoming Secretary of State. McCain seemed kind of hopeful about it, so I asked him, well, did you offer Tillerson help? I said, yeah, of course. But he also added, these guys never follow up, as McCain giving us a little insight into behind-the-scenes politics. After business was settled, we toured his office. He showed us a photo of him being pulled out of that lake in Hanoi that he ejected into after his fighter jet was struck. McCain recounted the story of how one of the men who pulled him from the lake stabbed him in the shoulder with a bayonet. And he said others beat him and spit on him. But there he was, McCain, seemingly holding no grudge, no ill will as he recounted the story. Instead, he was pointing to the photo and he seemed delighted that he had a picture of it saying, saying, I had no idea this photo existed until a few years ago. Sitting there in his office, the day before another McCain rival, Donald Trump, was set to become the 45th president of the United States, I got the sense that McCain never took any of this for granted. It, too, was his duty and his honor of his love of country. Also there in his office are two photographs taken by the man Senator McCain replaced in the Senate, Barry Goldwater. Though McCain is an Arizona transplant like so many of us here are, he loved the state as much as Goldwater, and he dedicated his life to serving it and this nation. And in doing so, through his 35 total years in Congress, McCain has now eclipsed Goldwater as Arizona's most beloved. Over the 20 years I've been covering politics, I've interviewed several state lawmakers, several congressmen and women, several senators, even presidential candidates. None of them have been like Senator McCain. His last appearance at 550 KFYI in Phoenix, my radio station, came the same day he received treatment for geoblastoma, his brain cancer. McCain and his daughter Megan show up at the station immediately after leaving the hospital. He arrived with his usual brisk walk, seemingly trying to keep up with the Earth's rotation. I struggled to keep up, and he just left the hospital. Then McCain sat for 30 minutes answering questions about Trump and national issues and foreign affairs, as he usually does, like it was just another day. It struck me then that even through his diagnosis, he cared more about his state and his country than he did his own health. During a commercial break, I walked into the studio, I shook his hand, and I said, Senator, I just have to tell you, you are a badass. McCain smiled and laughed, and that's exactly how I remember him, as a badass. My name is Rob Hunter from 550 KFYN Phoenix for The Daily Dive.
We started off the week in a somber note mourning the loss of Senator John McCain, but there was another tragedy that happened over the weekend. On Sunday, a 24-year-old named David Katz opened fire at a Madden NFL 19 tournament. It was one of these esports tournaments where everybody's playing these games and there's uh, large sums of money to be won. He apparently lost his game and then went to his car, returned with a gun, killed two people and injured nine others. There was news that he did have some mental health issues. Miranda, what do we know about that? Cats would go for days without washing his hair. He would lose his mind if his mom would take away his gaming consoles. She said that when she took away his equipment controllers so that he wouldn't play at four and three in the morning, she would get up and find her son walking around the house in circles. This was an unusual behavior for him. He had mental health issues. He was twice admitted to mental health service facilities, once for 12 days and another for 13 days. He was able to buy his guns legally, even though he spent some time in mental health facilities. We spoke to Eli Blumenthal, reporter for USA Today. We wanted to talk to him about the rise of esports and the stress and the time that goes into this for these gamers. But we started off by talking about a possible motive. The police haven't released one yet. The reports are that he was upset that he lost in this tournament. A winner of the inevitable tournament would receive $25,000, so a lot of money on the line. This was just a qualifier for that tournament. He apparently lost and was upset. Again, a lot of details are still coming out, but was upset, and that prompted him to apparently want to grab a gun and open fire. Now, he's like a former champion. He's won other tournaments and things like that, so he's known in the gaming community. Yeah, he is somebody who has had success playing video games before and playing Madden before. This isn't somebody who just burst onto the scene. And now we're finding out that the guns that he used during the shooting, he only used one, but he had two on him. They were purchased legally just very recently. And we're also hearing that he had a history of mental illness. The Associated Press looked into divorce records for his parents and they find out that he had previously been hospitalized twice for mental illness. They were giving him antipsychotic drugs and antidepressant medications. There was just a bunch of stuff that happened. You know, they said that he would want to play the video games obsessively and refuse to go to school or even bathe. His hair would go unwashed for days. And this is all in divorce filing. So it, it's a lot of touchy information. He didn't have a great relationship with his mother, but as is the case with a lot of shooters, there is a history of mental illness. And now with this thing happening, at this esports gaming tournament, it's shed the spotlight back on the industry, the the rise of esports and how you mentioned that this tournament had a $25,000 potential prize. These things are huge now. These tournaments have completely burst onto the gaming world and into the gaming landscape, really. PricewaterhouseCoopers estimates that spending on esports, that's media rights, streaming advertising, ticket sales is going to grow from a projected $184 million in 2017 to $467 million in 2022. Wow. Other estimates point this at being close to a billion dollar industry, and it's only growing. According to research from Superdata, about 258 million people watched an esports event just last year. Yeah, and they're going on places like Twitch, which specifically in this story, they were broadcasting uh, portions of the Madden tournament where you could hear the gunshots going out. So this industry is giving rise to these games, these tournaments, and then other things like these Twitch live streaming channels. A big part of esports, and that's uh, these type of games, Madden played online or Call of Duty or Fortnite, is that they are broadcast live on the internet. 
And this tournament, like so many others, was broadcast live on Twitch, which is a platform that has grown in large part due to its presence in the gaming community. So, yeah, this was broadcast live. The gunshots were heard live. Uh, Some people even said they saw if they watched the video, which circulated on the Internet after they saw the laser from apparently some kind of attachment that the gunman had. Yeah, police did say that there was a laser sight aftermarket laser sight attached to the gun. So all this stuff was very much visible online as, again, so many of these tournaments are broadcast on the internet and that's part of the appeal is that people are able to watch, for the most part, free and easy, some of their favorite players play in real time and interact with them in real time. Talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be an esports player. A lot of people say this is just like dedicating as much time to being a real athlete, playing football or basketball. You have to practice and train and you live, eat, sleep it kind of thing. And it's the same thing with a lot of these people. It's not physically demanding per se, but it's very mentally taxing. How many hours do these guys put in? What is it like to be an esports gamer? So the professional esports gamers are really, as you said, Oscar, doing this no different really than a professional athlete. They're practicing six to eight hours a day with a team in a practice facility. They have a staff around them, coaches, analysts. There's game film that they go through. They're nutritionists that help their diet. And they get paid pretty handsomely as well. Top players can make seven figures. So we're talking millions of dollars here. Even the lower tier players are making forty dollars to $50,000 per year. That's pretty decent just for playing some games. But it's a high stress situation. As you said, you want to win the tournaments because those are the big payouts. And we don't know the motive yet. But for somebody that might have a history of mental illness and the stress that comes with these things and losing, I mean, it's enough to set somebody off. I want to be careful not to speculate because, again, there's so much information that we still don't know. But as with all sporting environments, whether virtual or real, where there's lots of money on the line, there's bound to be lots of stress. And we're talking about the big money now of esports, major corporations, sports, traditional sports leagues, TV networks, they're all involved. The NFL is endorsing some of these things. The NBA also, they they have these, like I said, the Madden competition and NBA has one as well. Talk a little bit about the money that's coming in from these sources. A lot of traditional revenue streams are starting to embrace esports. You have major sponsors such as AT&T. You have leagues such as the NBA. They partnered with Take-Two Interactive, who are the creators for uh, the very popular video game NBA 2K. And they launched a league in partnership with actual NBA franchises. High schools and colleges have courses and teams dedicated to it also. So it's going to be an industry that's going to keep growing. When something like this happens at an event, the industry does look inward. They have to reevaluate what do we need to do? More security. That's the easy one. The bigger the event, they're going to have more security now. But you also got to look at how much these things impact the actual players. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of programs going forward to try to help address some of the stresses that come with playing with these games. There's definitely going to be a moment of introspection, as one would expect when a tragedy like this befalls an industry. As you mentioned, security is one thing that is bound to change at the smaller events, like the one that happened in Jacksonville. The events that are taking place in in the major venues also probably will have a change. But we're talking about venues like Madison Square Garden or Barclays Center, major arenas around the world. Those security measures, I'm sure, will change too, but they already have the same security protocols that they use for a basketball game or a concert. As for the mental aspect of it all, it definitely it remains to be seen what the industry is going to do, but it's very likely that changes will be made to uh, put a better benefit on players' mental health. Eli Blumenthal, reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.